The Cambi Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kwikwetlem peoples. It is May 19th, 2021, and there are 514 days until the Vancouver Municipal Election. This is the Cambio Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. Bushfield. What a show we have for you today. It is chock full of, of council dramas and, and other news bites from around the region, including one from Coquitlam. <laughs> Well, the main story here is that I've moved, which is why it's been a few weeks since we've been able to sit down and record. Uh, it turns out moving during a pandemic is very complicated. And when the housing crisis is going wild a few months ago, lining up move dates wasn't easy. So I had to spend a week in kits. But here I am now in a single family home outside Coquitlam Centre, and I can just enjoy my backyard, and I can complain about towers that might block my view. I'm obsessed with very mundane things like garbage service schedules. I wish it was more frequent right now, because the previous owners did not empty the trash bin before leaving. The standard obsessions of the suburban man. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it did make me realize, we've never talked about Coquitlam on this show. Never once. Which I think is probably... You know, speaks to the quality of, of government over in Coquitlam. The fact that nothing has ever happened is probably a good thing. No news is good news so much of the time. But we do have lots of news to touch on. Before we get into that, we need your support to help keep making that news. You can do that at patreon.com slash report. Yes, that's patreon.com slash report. The support from patreon.com slash report has enabled us to do things like we got a recent FOI dump. I didn't actually mention this to you, Matthew, yet, but we have a absurd amount of information on a former city planner, which I don't know if is useful yet, unfortunately. So we need your support to be able to spend some time to look at that and figure out what our planners were doing in the past and what other news we can discover in the future. I'm sure it will be some fascinating stuff. And to do that, you can, of course, visit patreon.com slash report. Starting off the news, a 12-story social housing might be easier to get in Vancouver in a certain types of apartment zones uh, because of a motion that is currently before city council. Instead of having to go to a public hearing in three types of zones, largely concentrated around Mount Pleasant and Kitsilano, uh, as well as some in Marple. There are currently 126 speakers that are being heard at the public hearing on the motion to eliminate future public hearings, and that is ongoing. I think they're on speaker eight, maybe nine, so we're not going to hold off recording until that's done sometime in July at this rate, I suspect. Yeah. Um, however, one of the people who was uh, speaking was one Bill Thielman, recent refugee from Twitter, who calls the motion an affront to democracy because, of course, it offends his democratic rights to not be able to go and yell about the fact that he doesn't want poor people living near him. 
I think that brings us to the sixth or seventh time democracy has died this year in Vancouver. For those counting, the cat democracy should have two or three more lives before it's finally slayed. However, just as you know, the sneaky dictatorship, while it did not arrive some time ago, is, of course, eventually going to come. Now, two people who will not be speaking to this motion are Michael Weeb and Melissa DiGenova, who have been told by legal to recuse themselves. So this I'm not totally clear on from the reporting from Twitter. I did see that Michael Weeb had recused himself, and Francis Beulah speculated on whether that might sink the motion if it ends up being a 5-5 vote in the end. But I also did hear it reported that Melissa DiGenova also owns a property that might be affected by this and may also have been told to recuse, though I don't know if she did, because, you know, we're busy recording and not watching this live. So, as this is an ongoing news story, I'm sure we'll uh, update you next episode as to whether this passed or so this not. So this is from ca- Councillor Christine Boyle, right? It's an effort mm-hmm. to try to really both increase the amount of density in the city, but also promote social housing. Like, what do you think of it, Matthew? Do you think it's a good motion? I, I think it is. So one of the biggest obstacles to development of social housing is the whole development permit process, which in in cases of social housing is more onerous than building just a standard apartment of market rental or market housing, etc. This is something that will shave about a year off the development time and possibly up to like $800,000 off of the the whole repermitting process, which makes it a lot easier for social housing developments to actually get their feet off the ground and the shovels into the ground. I think it's smartly crafted as well, right? It tries to focus on social housing, which is hard to politically oppose. I guess if you're, you know, a wealthy middle class or upper class NIMBY in Kitsilano, it's not hard to oppose, but for the Gene Swanson types who want everything to be social housing for even, you know, the centrists and people on council, I think generally are all supportive of social housing. How could you say no to it as long as someone else pays for it? Hmm. I think the one thing some Yimbis may have been critical of it is it doesn't go far enough, right? It only focuses on these specific zones initially, but there is deep within the motion in those therefore clauses an element that calls on city staff to report back on how they could allow additional density and social housing in other residential zoning districts, such as single family neighborhoods and mixed commercial residential zones, which, you know, when you look at the zoning map of Vancouver and somehow simplify it into something that's understandable and meaningful, you see a lot of the city is, you know, that single family home preserve. It is just an ocean of of like that RSU zoning, and it it's, it really speaks to me to how many zones Vancouver has. <laughs> I think Vancouver is overzoned and overregulated. I I was on the Board of Variants yesterday call, and there was a long debate over the difference between a row house and a stacked townhouse. And the city staff said something that I found so perplexing, and and that is like. The, because both of them are effectively like apartment type buildings of a sort, and they said people who expect there to be a row house where row houses are zoned for are going to be disappointed if a stacked townhouse appears or something to that effect. And I'm like, 
What on earth are you talking about? No, they won't. I couldn't even tell you what the difference is. I, I mean, I know what the difference is, and it's not important. Like, from from all intents and purposes, like, does it fit within the idea of the neighborhood? Is the really one of the the end all and be all questions of what the board variance is trying to do? And like, it, it's just so ridiculous how many zones appear. People care about like the shape of the building finally, but I don't think I don't think that if you go door to door in a neighborhood and asked, are you offended by the stacked townhouse that has appeared where this row house was zoned for? People will be like, what the fuck are you talking about? One thing that has upset people though here in Vancouver is actually this Vancouver model of decriminalization we've been talking about. And surprisingly, the newest criticism for it has not come from, you know, crusading moralists who oppose drug use in any and all forms, but it's actually come from the Vancouver area network of drug users and other drug user and policy advocates who think the model proposed by the mayor of Vancouver and the federal health department does not go far enough. Yeah, and in a letter to the federal health minister, Petty Haiju, the coalition of 15 organizations said the current proposal has to be scrapped or risks reproducing the harms of prohibition. They said specifically, quote, we cannot abide by the phony Vancouver model of decriminalization and refuse to be tokenized in petty political bids, end quote. They call this decriminalization on the terms of police and politicians. It's worth getting into the weeds a little on where the disappointment from activists has come from. The Vancouver model, as pitched by Kennedy Stewart and Health Canada, involves decriminalization of simple possession up to what a typical amount of drugs would be used by a user in a couple days. So there are you know, numbers for crack cocaine, other opioids, etc., that the police couldn't arrest you if you were holding those. The advocates, I think, have claimed that these numbers weren't fully developed in consultation with actual drug users and were just kind of estimated and kind of highlight that there's still a lot of ways to criminalize people besides from just the small amount or mid-amount that they may be holding. And also when you focus on, as police often do, drug dealers or what they call drug dealers, well, the people who use drugs need to get them from somewhere. Yeah, and one thing that the Vancouver-based Pivot Legal Society highlights is that a defective decriminalization model could set a harmful precedent for uh, jurisdictions across the country, and that lower thresholds on what constitutes simple possession, uh, rather than possession for the purposes of trafficking, mean that there can't be an ability for a drug user to purchase multiple day supply in one purchase without violating the criminal code. Even if, if someone wants to go and buy their drugs for, say, a week, which is not an entirely unreasonable thing to want to do, I think. They're probably going to, if they're a heavy drug user, they are uh, almost certainly going to be violating the criminal code because they're going to exceed the uh, limit that is set up to differentiate between trafficking and uh, simple possession. Kennedy Stewart, in response, says he respects the views of Van Du and the proposed thresholds were a starting point and will be evaluated as data becomes available, but it doesn't sound like he was willing to budge on the initial proposal. Yeah, and I think that's probably fair. It's, while this 
might like cause people to engage with like the criminal distribution system of of drugs more frequently the the mayor I, I think does have a point in like sticking to his guns here a little bit the the plan is so far as things go still pretty radical and i think this is i, I think a good pass blocking measure that might help this go through a little easier it's shifting the Overton window, essentially, so that yeah. suddenly Kennedy Stewart's in the middle of reasonable, despite initially throwing out something that would have been unthinkable even probably two years ago in this city. Yes, but unfortunately, opiate-related deaths countrywide could climb as high as 2,000 per quarter in the first half of 2021, which is absolutely epidemic levels of death. The last three months of 2018 only saw 1,200 people die uh, of drug overdose. This is going to continue to rise until we do something about it and something needs to be done about it soon. We responded to one crisis moderately okay in BC. Parts of it were much stronger. I'm talking about COVID-19, of course. Parts of it deserve some criticism. The response to the overdose epidemic has just been woefully inadequate. We were seeing some progress be made until the pandemic struck, but it's slow. We're still losing a lot of people. We talk about the need for decriminalization, you know, stop the policing of people, but also the safe supply. And pilots are being pitched and talked about on both of those fronts, but the progress is so slow. It's so slow. So, Currently, in the first three months uh, in Vancouver alone, almost 500 people died from toxic drugs. And this is like more people are going to die during this COVID epidemic of drug overdoses than are going to die of COVID. That is an almost certainty because we are seeing our deaths go down now and overdose deaths continue to rise. So hopefully we will see some a movement on some kind of plan and hopefully it, it is of course continually amended to be the type of plan that will cause this epidemic to slow down in other news uh, the vancouver school board and new westminster school board have both voted to expel the cops the school liaison program from their schools under their jurisdiction we have talked about this a couple of times but it was just recently that the Vancouver School Board finally passed its motion to end the school liaison officer program in spite of, of what I, I kind of realized after talking with someone at the school board were some like reasonable concerns that removing police from schools would have a negative impact on some kids. I, I think they've made the right decision, but I, I think that it shows a lot of thought on the part of the school board trustees that they are, you know, contemplating both sides in spite of the fact that the presentation for the school liaison board was more of a culture war artifact than what I think the actual arguments were for, for keeping the program, which have to do with cases of unreported abuse. So the, Debates over the school liaison officer programs in the two cities were quite interesting to compare. In Vancouver, like you say, there was a lot of push and pull on the different sides of the debate on what value the program as it stood may have had for different parts of the school, as well as a lot of the criticism coming from BIPOC activists. 
what I found really interesting is the vote breakdown in Vancouver was as far as I could tell, almost unanimously in support of the motion, with the exception of one city trustee, Jennifer Reddy, who I would have expected to be the most vocal you know, supporter of pulling the cops out of the schools. But she voted against it, in her words, because it doesn't go far enough to be unequivocally clear that, in fact, school liaison officers' police will be removed from schools. It spends more time delineating what the next steps of working with police in our schools will be, much of which is already covered in our own protocol. The motion ends, actually, with a thank you letter to be written by the school board to the Vancouver police, which I think I saw many on the left and many in the abolish the police just see as, like, what? Just, it's fine. Yeah. Just, like, <laughs> sure, it's a what, but also some people are going to end up getting reassigned, and that is uh, going to be a dislocation in their lives. And I, I hope that, you know, in spite of what the, the impact might have been on, on certain people, I, I think that individual officers often do have good intentions when they sign up for these programs. And I think that, you know, in, at a time when this is going to be coming to an end, they can be treated with dignity. In New West, the program also had one lone vote against it. This was trustee Mary Lally, who opposed the motion saying she wanted to see more consultation with the New West Police Department. She had proposed a motion to amend the program, but was met with no one to second her motion, which is always sad. It's always sad. It's always a little like, and seconder, Bueller, Bueller, oh, I'm sorry, the motion dies for lack of a seconder. No uh, one even wants to talk about it. <laughs> one thing that we do want to talk about, however, is Bill 8, the BC government's recent legislation introduced by BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth to amend the Liquor Control and Licensing Act to, quote, authorize the Vancouver Park Board to designate specific public places under its jurisdiction as places where liquor may be consumed. This is somewhat shocking to me, given how, and I, I think to some other people, given how people have been openly drinking in parks for the entire pandemic. And there was a whole hullabaloo, uh, a big to-do about the fact that the Vancouver Park Board was going to allow drinking in parks. I think people just sort of assumed that they were allowing drinking in parks, but apparently they weren't and have yet to begin the pilot program. Yeah, so a few municipalities across Metro Vancouver and across BC used the emergency powers and the authorities that they had during the pandemic to allow drinking in parks. I think City of North Van, New West, Port Coquitlam, and I'm probably missing others, all launched these pilot programs. They were met with wild success because they gave people outdoor spaces to drink and not fear prosecution. Vancouver Park Board kept dithering over this and i remember seeing debates over you know do we have the legislative authority to do this and the province was like yeah you do don't worry about it and they're like no our legal counsel seems to think we don't and the province was like well you could just do it and we won't care in which case you can get away with it and they're mm -hmm. like now we're gonna wait and so finally the province just like gave in and in this bill that does makes a couple other things permanent from the pandemic says, all right, we will make it explicitly clear that the Park Board of Vancouver can allow drinking in the parks it controls if it chooses to. And now the ball's kind of going back to the Park Board's court to decide if they're going to 
get off their asses. Yes, uh, it is ridiculous that the park board can, in fact, announce a whole program that it isn't doing. Like the city did come forward and tried to go a step and do what they could, and they found several public plazas, like around Robson Square and in front of the Queen Elizabeth Theatre and plazas like that, and named them as pilot projects for public drinking. And those were a pretty big success. But the park board still hasn't been able to move, which I think, you know, if you're a park board commissioner with your eyes on the mayorship, you might want to have a better record than this to run on. One might think so. This is interesting, as another mayoral candidate has jumped into the fray, the debate over this motion. One Mark Marison has tweeted out something respecting how Kennedy Stewart was recently cycling around uh, talking to people in parks about how basically people wanted to drink in parks. Although hilariously, in the picture where Kennedy Stewart is talking to people about how they want to drink in parks, they are already drinking in a park. Marison said, remember when the mayor promised we would be able to peacefully drink in parks? No, because that wasn't necessarily the mayor's jurisdiction, but he was talking about the plazas. Marison continues, we didn't get it because Kennedy Stewart was absent for the vote, which was a tie. Then linking a business in Vancouver article where Vancouver Council says no to legal drinking spaces, uh, breaking down along a NPA plus versus One City Green and Swanson in favor. However, a 5-5 tie means the status quo is maintained and the motion failed to proceed. Like, the people I'm mad at are those voting against this? Like, we've seen Kennedy Stewart in the data we talked about on the last podcast has missed a lot of votes as a mayor would likely do given the ceremonial responsibilities they tend to have of all the votes for Kennedy to miss that failed this like I like the idea of drinking in plazas and public stuff but is this the like oh this is the worst crime kind of situation yeah I mean it's it's unfortunate that they couldn't have postpone the vote. And I think this is like a kind of testament to Stewart's inability to stick handle legislation very well. Like he, he should be able to work with council a little more on scheduling if he has to take, you know, sudden and unexpected personal leave that kind of, that where he is expecting there to be a, a close vote. Well, someone else who, doesn't necessarily miss votes, but just chooses not to participate in them, is Colleen Hardwick. (laughs) From acts of quiet protest to whatever the hell this was, uh, as uh, on the motion to decriminalize poverty, the only abstention on an otherwise unanimous vote was one Colleen Hardwick. Yeah, there's been a few other votes recently she's missed i think she missed one this or abstained from one this afternoon it goes with that trend we talked about she is the largest abstainer that we've seen on this council and potentially in you know definitely in the council before comparatively like abstentions under the vancouver charter are yes votes so yeah it's it's a met i don't get it what is she gaining by this well, it's in the most charitable reading of this. It's that 
she realizes that she has a constituency, knows what the right thing is, knows her constituency is opposed to it, and decides to vote in such a way as to not block the motion, despite what her constituents might want. It is. It's a lack of a spine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think you should just stand up and uh, like take your beliefs either either in favor or against you were elected to take a stand if you didn't want to why did you run someone asked on twitter when can you lose your job for refusing to do it if you're a counselor and i believe the answer is october 15th 2022 514 days from now <laughs> yeah, that is correct one party that will be contesting said election is the NPA, and they have some new faces, and, well, returning faces, that will be joining their board. These include one Lou Cruz, a realtor of questionable tweets, Sophia Ajou, a education consultant, and someone who you may be familiar with, Elizabeth Ball, the former counselor who is also going to be serving as vice president. So Ball is quite respected, widely, is mm -hmm. a more moderate voice really good to see her involvement again it does signal like return to normalcy attempt possibly for the npa i could not find anything out about sophia zoo i haven't seen anyone say you know know who she is so nothing there lou cruz people found her tweets and they're quite wide-ranging in their concerns complaints and worries yeah, most concerning of these is her tweet, which reads, Before we were told nobody over 65 should get it, now it's nobody under 55. How about not to use it at all? Referring to either vaccines in general or the AstraZeneca vaccine. I think specifically the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, you know, while it is a little concerning that Canada continued to use it in specific circumstances where a lot of other countries did put a hold on its usage. The tweet itself should, I don't know, I think that people should, especially if they're going to be planning on running for uh, public office or, or participating in the political landscape, be a little more judicious in warning people against using a vaccine, which we all definitely need. I got my vaccine on Monday. I felt quite crappy afterwards for a little while and uh, but now i feel invincible basically <laughs> in i have to wait until the 30th i'm counting down the days but another one of cruz's tweets was a reply to someone who was complaining about justin trudeau and she wrote in reply of course justin controls the media just like the chinese do we're well on our way to communism well i have no words for that indeed and that was tweeted on March 5th, 2021. So these aren't exactly digging up ancient history. No. Another person with no words is the Crown Prosecutor related to the Rob Vagramoff case. He has revealed that he is not going to be sharing the details of the alternative measures that uh, Mayor Vagramoff was subjected to following his diversion from the criminal justice system following a allegation of sexual assault. Vegramov was directed into the alternative measures program following a three-month investigation into sexual assault allegations. The Crown Prosecutor says that there is no right for the press uh, or the public to see what alternative measures were assigned. Like, it makes sense. It's a, I think it's a reasonable judgment, but it's unfortunate from the public interest journalism kind of point of view to know what the conclusion to this story was. Like, I get that to go into alternative measures, I believe the victim in the case has to agree to this 
mm -hmm. approach, right? So, you know, in respecting her wishes, this seems like a reasonable conclusion. Although given the continued allegations and unpleasantness on Port Moody City Council that continue to this day, yeah, knowing what, you know, underlying tensions and are pushing there. I'm not saying he's done anything to any of the other councillors, but there seems to be a toxic attitude at that council that, oof. Yeah, and, and it, is, it is too bad that we are not going to be able to, to hear really the end of this story. It is going to end with a bit of a whimper and not a bang, a fizzle and a thud. It is too, however, the public's benefit that alternative measures does exist and, and that people can be diverted into the program without having to go through the criminal justice system. One of the benefits to alternative measures for people is that they aren't subjected to the public opprobrium of having a, a punishment recorded. And I actually think that is like important. Uh, I don't think that our politicians should really be treated any differently from the rest of us if they commit a crime that uh, can be diverted into alternative measures. The same measures should apply to them as everyone else. Well, and I don't think there's any smooth segue into the final batch of stories we want to touch on today, which is the series of appointments that have basically been made in City of Vancouver Metro to senior positions. Notably, the city manager of the City of Vancouver is now Paul Mockery. He was appointed after serving as the interim, so congrats, Paul. Teresa O'Donnell, similarly, has become the director of planning in the city of Vancouver. This follows her being the acting one following Gil Kelly's sudden departure earlier this year. And finally, just I think today or yesterday, TransLink named that their new CEO will be Kevin Quinn, not to be confused with, I think, Kevin Quinlan, the former yes. Vision Vancouver <laughs> executive that everyone saw that name and went, him? No, not him. This is the former Maryland Transit Administrator. Yes, he's starting on his job in July 19th. He uh, is actually going to be replacing one Kevin Desmond, who stepped down in February after nearly five years, who going back to the United States. So from the United States, we would pull yet another transit commissioner or transit CEO. TransLink is, of course, going to be preparing under his term for a post-pandemic recovery and continuing expanding ridership, rebuilding it, and achieving some kind of financial uh, sustainability. That will be a difficult task, and I wish Mr. Quinn the best of luck. I saw some on Twitter a little skeptical as Maryland's bus ridership numbers had been relatively flat to declining pre-pandemic, and that is one thing that Vancouver is eager to not do. We had been on a pretty good track of increasing transit across transit usage on all modes prior to the pandemic. Of course, the urgent public health advice to not go anywhere kind of killed public transit for a year. Yeah. Rebuilding that's going to be tough. But that said, I don't know enough about, you know, the success and failures of the Maryland Transit Administration and how much of that is Kevin Quinn specifically. Similarly, Teresa O'Donnell has been involved in Vancouver's planning department for much of, you know, the recent history where Gil Kelly's administration came under some scrutiny for the delays that have piled up. But how much of that is her fault. Can't really be said. She has to kind of establish her own brand and mark on the department, I guess. Mm -hmm. These three people, I, I think I would 
basically call them the, the top bureaucrats of the city, are going to be facing some tremendous challenges in the coming years. Uh, and so I hope they're all up for it. Good luck, everyone. Well, that brings us to Vancouverada. Every show we bring you a tidbit of history from Vancouver's past. This one is 1912 William Street. This is a fascinating story that was highlighted on CBC. This address, this lot, is up for sale right now. It is potentially the cheapest property in the city. If you want to own a piece of Vancouver, if you want to ha be a potential homeowner, you would have to build a home on it. You could have this lot for $249,000. That is down from the $289,000 list price at the end of April. Unfortunately, the lot is nine foot wide by 60 foot deep. It's, uh, yeah, that's an unusual size. Is that a, a Statters Gunter's chain kind of uh, measurement? No, no, not, not normal. Nine feet. I, think my, I think the lot my house is on right now is 47 feet wide, so. Yeah, the standard lot in Vancouver is 33 feet wide, so this is a little under third of that. Basically, it's what happened is this, this lot was last sold for a mere $88,000 in July 2020, about the same time as BC Assessment pegged its value at just $4,900. So already quite the markup, but I love the fact that between July and April, someone decided, you know what, I can more than, I can almost triple the cost of this and see if someone will take it. And the realtor who's selling it right now highlights that this is still cheaper than a one bedroom condo and you could build a whole house on this. Yeah. But yeah. Technically, maybe. You could build a house. There, on there it. are plans for a uh, tiny home that you could erect on the property. I don't know if they've been signed off by the city, so you might face the planning hell we just referred to. Yeah, I, I look forward to their innovative use of bay windows. Just four pieces of glass, two of them very narrow. And, and like, Vancouver is, of course, no stranger to incredibly thin buildings. The thinnest building in the world is, in fact, in Vancouver. That is the Jack Chow Insurance Building that allows people to come up from the outside because there is, of course, no room inside. The space is only six feet wide. So they tried to figure out why this lot is so small and it doesn't seem like there's enough history on it. It was registered in 1909 following a subdivision of two larger lots. And this may have just been cleaved off to be like a public laneway or access to another lot that just never materialized and now just remains a private piece of property. The CBC journalist looked and found on nearby 916 Victoria Drive, there's a similar sliver of land, but that one is actually attached to the property around the corner. It seems the story behind <laughs> that is that one of the previous owners won that strip from their neighbor, their like kitty corner back neighbor in a poker game in the 1930s or 40s. And there was a garage on it and someone, I guess, just bet their garage and lost it. And so they transferred title and merged the properties. The current owner of that property tried to sell that garage to one of the elderly neighbors beside it because it would make more sense to amalgamate that. But he wanted to talk to the man of the house rather than the woman who was speaking to him. And so she decided not to sell to the sexist old part. It's, I, I love these little artifacts of, of Torrens titling, basically. It's every, every bit of land, and, you know, returning, of course, to that particular obsession of the English-speaking world, land ownership, every little 
bit of it is effectively like cataloged and registered with the land titles office and it does occasionally end up with like weird instances like this a nine foot lot that you know honestly if you wanted to build a host on it i think more power to you i think the city needs more density so let's just go about putting it where we can it might be an innovative way to get more housing into places where we don't currently have it what an optimistic end <laughs> well there are 514 days to go everyone it's going to be a long slog but a interesting one until the next vancouver municipal election we will be with you every step of the way for the Camby report i am matthew naylor and i'm ian bushfield good afternoon <laughs> <laughs>